You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. Folks, if you've listened to the Herd Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from D.C. and beyond. From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to the District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Herd Tell. Ah, welcome back to Herd Tell, folks. I'm Andrew Donaldson. It is a Tuesday. It is August 23rd, year of our Lord. 2022 just continues to roll right along. And wherever you and yours are, across the street, around the world, we thank you so much for taking the time, most precious thing you have, giving us a little bit of your day to talk about the noise of the news cycle and turn it down a little bit. We got quite a few stories we want to get to today. Uh, We're going to go overseas. Cameroon in Africa, five years into a civil war, no sign of letting up story that's not getting covered a whole lot in Western media, but we're going to touch in with the BBC and what's been going on over there. Um, I'm going to end the show um, amongst the flooding in Appalachia, Eastern Kentucky, my home state of West Virginia. There's something that happens in all these floods and other natural disasters that sometimes get covers and sometimes doesn't the pets, because people go into temporary shelters, they have to go into hotels. They got to go into FEMA living. Uh, they have to live with friends. They can't, can't take their pets with them. So pet charities go through the roof in their need of things. We're going to touch in on that at the end of the program. Our guest today, one of our favorites, Dr. Catherine Gordon. It's been a little while since we've seen her. She's been busy with some life stuff. We got her back. We're going to go through some headlines on mental health, some of the narratives and some of the news items that touch on mental health. Also, one of our favorite things to do with her, pop culture references. She goes and she loves to use pop culture to discuss mental health things. I'm going to talk about some big ticket uh, entertainment things out there. She-Hulk, Stranger Things, Game of Thrones, and some other ways that mental health is depicted, whether it's good, bad, or indifferent. We'll talk about all that. Also, we have another clip from our current episode of the Herd Tell podcast, our deep dive on Machiavelli with Amanda Griffins. Don't want to miss that. Uh, that'll be up in just a little bit. Great clip involving the founding fathers, John Adams in specific. 
he wrote so much about Machiavelli. He actually wrote about what other people wrote about Machiavelli. So he was really into it. How did that affect what one of the really important people in the founding of America thought policy-wise, strategy-wise? We'll get into that with Amanda Griffin. Short clip from that. But first, we're going to deal with yet another viral video of police misconduct. Now, let's just frame this for a second. This happened out in Arkansas. We did what we usually do. We let this breathe for a couple of days because we wanted the full story before we jumped off. Because anytime you see a snippet of video, we need to understand one of our core principles here on Hertel. Nothing happens in a vacuum. It happens in a sequence. When you get a 20, 30 second video, there's things that happen before and after that that give you context. We now have that context as part of the investigation that's going on. So let's get into it. Um, this is Mulberry, Arkansas. Uh, two deputies and a police officer in Arkansas are under investigation after a video circulated online showing a violent arrest where a man was beaten by the three law enforcement officials. This is from THV11.com. The video was taken at the County Express in Mulberry, Arkansas, and shows multiple law enforcement officers on top of the suspects that were allegedly using excessive force. If you watch the video, there's not a whole lot of alleged to this. The officers and the deputies that were involved in the recording have since been identified, and Mulberry Officer Theo Riddle, Deputy Levi White, and Deputy Zach King. The Crawford County Sheriff's Office announced that the Arkansas State Police has been requested to conduct an investigation into the incident, and the two deputies involved have been suspended on paid leave pending the outcome of the investigation and added they will take appropriate measures in the matter. The city of Mulberry said in a statement that it takes the investigation serious and holds all accountable, all officers accountable for all their actions. And according to the sheriff, Jimmy DeMonte with the Crawford County Sheriff's Office, all the police were called to the convenience store Sunday morning in regards to a man making terroristic threats to one of the employees, 27 year old Randall Worcester or Worcestershire, I'm not sure how you're going to pronounce his name, of South Carolina, allegedly spat on the convenience store employee and then proceeded to make threats, saying they would, quote, cut off their face. Mulberry police stated that Worcester then left on a bike towards exit 20 in Mulberry, and that's where the Mulberry police officers and deputies were able to catch up with him. The conversation began in a common civil manner, but the sheriffs claimed the man then allegedly began to attack one of the deputies and pushed him into the ground while punching back at the head. This is what led to what is shown in the video. Reports state that Worcester was taken to the hospital for treatment and was released, then jailed in Jan Van Buren. According to the Sheriff Del Monte, the man faces charges of terroristic threatening, resisting arrest, second-degree battery, trespassing, aggravated assault, and being in position of an instrument of crime. Let's just break this down for a second. What we have here is a violent criminal who undoubtedly committed violence and threatened violence. He then got violence with the police when they went to arrest him, so they had to use violence to constrain him. So far, so good. Here's where this breaks down. Sometime between that and the 30 seconds we see on this video, things got out of hand. When you watch the video, it is very clear what is happening. They are kneeing him, hitting him, bashing his head into the concrete, punching him. They're fighting him, and he's already down prone with three men on top of him. And though he continues to resist, they're very clearly going after this guy extremely aggressively. Here's the tell that they know that they went too far here. When one of the police officers looks up and see that they're being recorded and starts yelling about the recording and pointing at the recorder, the other two stop. All three of them stop hitting, stop kneeing, stop bashing his head in when they see the camera. 
It's like when you're a little kid and all of a sudden you get caught by your parent and you immediately stop whatever you're doing and act like you weren't doing it. Their behavior tells you what happened here. Yes, he was a violent criminal. Yes, he attacked the police. Yes, the police responded in kind, but it got out of hand and it got carried away and they know it. And their actions show that they know it because as soon as they realized they were being recorded, they immediately, instantly stopped. I'm just going to repeat that for a second. This isn't conjecture. This is their own actions telling on them. They knew they'd gone too far because as soon as they realized they were being recorded, they stopped. People talk about back the blue and supporting police and all that. That's great. I support police. We desperately need good police. But if you care about something, you hold it accountable. And these men's own actions show that they realize that this got out of hand. And people go, well, he attacked them first. Yes, but these are police officers. They're trained and paid. And their role in society is to be that buffer where they can do violence to stop violence, but then stop being violent and protect the peace. Because once they get somebody in custody, as we've talked about with George Lloyd and uh, George Floyd and others, they are now responsible for that person. You can't just grab the guy's head and keep bashing it into the concrete once you've already got him down. They know this because, again, once the camera got on them and they knew it and they realized they were going to be held accountable for what they were doing, they changed how they were behaving. This is why we were so against these ridiculous laws that are being put out about not being able to film police. It keeps police honest. It tells us what really happens. Good police don't mind being recorded. Folks like this, when things get out of hand, all of a sudden the recording changed their behavior. And God knows what it might have stopped from going further. Now, this man is not innocent. He gets his day in court. He needs to be prosecuted for the crimes he did commit. And what they did to him does not lessen that. However, I'm sure it'll be figured in as a mitigating circumstance. And these three men get their day in court as well, and they get to defend themselves and what they did. But that video is telling. Like the little kid that got caught by their parent, they immediately stopped their behavior when they realized somebody was watching. And that tells you pretty much all you need to know here. Holding police accountable is vital to our society because they are the armed enforcement wing of the government, and they have responsibilities. We need to get back to what police used to be. A little less Punisher logos, a little less blue striped flags, a little more what we used to call them, peace officers, keeping the peace, maintaining the peace, not just throwing hands and cracking heads. Even when it's called for, they need to be restrained. That's their job. More hotel right after this. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done.
back to Hertel. Let's go overseas. Cameroon, Africa, very troubled country. Uh, five years into a civil war. Let's go to the BBC and touch in on what's going on over there. Uh, in just five years, this conflict has claimed tens of thousands of lives while forcing more than one million to flee to French-speaking areas and a further 80,000 to take refuge in next-door Nigeria. The war has its roots and grievances that date back to the end of colonialism when British-controlled territory was unified with French areas to create what is now Cameroon. Many English-speaking Cameroonians have felt marginalized ever since and have opposed what they see as attempts by the government, dominated by the French-speaking majority, to force them to give up their way of life, including their language, history, education, and legal system. Tensions boiled over in 2016 when tens of thousands of people in Bamenda and other English-speaking areas embarked on a series of protests against the use of French in their schools and their courts, as well as failure to publish government documents in English, even though it's an official language. With the government ordering the security forces to crack down on the protests rather than entering into talks to resolve the grievances, young men took up arms in the following year to demand independent state of Ambanzonian, and they call the two English-speaking regions. However, military vehicles now crisscross Baminda, including those with machine guns mounted on them, and they're constantly in the streets. Residents say soldiers raid homes, make arrests, burn markets, and even display the bodies of their victims, including commanders of the militia at major intersections, to warn residents against joining the separatists. Government forces have also suffered heavy losses in the conflict, with the bodies of fallen soldiers removed from the military's mortuary in the capital, Yeonde, every Thursday and Friday. Widows wail in front of a long line of coffins draped in the Cameroonian flags before the soldiers are buried among the pop and circumstances that mark military funerals. Separatist fighters have also gained notoriety for the atrocities against civilians, including beheadings and torturing of women they denounce for betraying the struggle, calling them blacklegs, a term that's regularly bandied about now. They circulate videos of these atrocities to warn other people about conspiring and the folks they suspect of colluding with the security forces. On Mondays, Baminda becomes a ghost town where the roads empty and markets close, part of a civic and economic disobedience campaign dating back to before the armed struggle. These days, residents who dare ignore the lockdown order are either shot dead or see their shops go up in smoke. The military and police also disappear from the streets so that they do not become soft targets for the separatist fighters who have a strong presence in the city. Separatists even ordered the closure of all the schools four years ago as part of their campaign. Few remain equal, few bravely remain open, but children do not dare their school, wear their school uniforms. The military enforces a curfew virtually every night in the city, resulting in many of the restaurants, bars, and clubs once reputed to be the best in Cameroon is going out of business, not helped by the now erratic electricity supply. The constant frying of popcorn has driven everyone away, says a waitress, using a metaphor to describe the never-ending sound of gunfire. She says it also prevents those who live abroad from coming home. Known as bushfallers, a pigged-in term for hunters, in this case seeking greener pasture, those in the diaspora were responsible for Barmendia's economic heartbeat, sending money back to invest in the once-mushrooming building trade and coming back to Christmas to share their largesse. But the authorities accusing them of bankrolling the Anglophone rebellion. Visiting returnees soon found themselves arrested. Some are now in the maximum security prisons at Yaande Adouala, while others simply disappear. Bushfaller's money has dried up, and none of them come to visit. Longtime resident Peter Shang, who once loved life in the city, says, Now you take it one day at a time. Quote, Life is a lottery. Too many things remind you about ultimate timely death. You talk to someone today, and tomorrow they're gone. And for Marie Claire Bizou, 
there is a silver lining, she says. She sees more of her husband because he gets home before curfew. He now has discovered his children. This is a man who used to come back late, sometimes drunk, and would just head to bed. Now he can play with his kids and check the books. This conflict is reunited, she says, but then stops. The only problem is that the gunshots always spoil our nights. It's from the BBC. Worry and pray for those folks in Cameroon. An ugly situation that shows no signs of abating. You pay attention to what's going on in the rest of the world, though, even when our Western media doesn't always cover such things. More Hertel right after this. Uh, welcome back to Herd Tell. Okay, you might have heard tell a lot of people talk about mental health. We talk about it on this show consistently since we first started doing it because it's important to talk about. It. And this is one of the people we've had on before to talk about it. It's just been a little while. She was busy moving and such, but we got her now. Dr. Catherine Gordon. We're going to call her Katie because I say Catherine in my accent. Bad things tend to happen and we're all friends now. She is an excellent uh, clinical psychologist. She is the author of the Suicide Thoughts Workbook. We'll talk about that in a little bit. Just got published in Arabic, of all things. You're worldwide, my friend. Great to have you back. Thank you for having me on. I, I always like talking to you, and I and I enjoy opportunities to talk about mental health, so thank you. How cool is that? It, it's one thing to get published. I remember the first time I got something published, and just, you know, even online or in a publication, and I remember the first time I got something in a newspaper, and I could physically hold it, and I remember the first time I got a cover at a major magazine. That's a big deal. When you write a book, that's an even bigger deal. When you get a book that they start printing in other languages, that's pretty big time. That's got to feel good, yeah? Absolutely. It, it just And I didn't know about it. I actually learned about it through Twitter because someone had, had tagged me on a tweet. So thank you, Twitter. And it, it just means a lot. Like I, I just, all of the work and effort that went into translating into another language and, and being able to provide these tools for suicide prevention and coping with suicidal thoughts to a broader audience just means so much to me. And it's got to be special when, you know, you're talking about and, you know, the Arabic languages. Obviously, those are countries that, you know, probably don't have as much liberalization as we do when it comes to things like mental health. That's got to really feel important to your work, doesn't it? When you're you know, in media, we'd call it opening a new market, really. But when you when you're going somewhere that a lot of your colleagues don't get to go, that's got to feel good. Yeah, it, it means a lot. I want as many people as possible to have access to mental health tools and, and to deal with the many struggles that people face. And so that's that's huge to me to be able to open up to people who who need to read a book in Arabic. I mean, that's that's a big deal. So, yeah, I appreciate you bringing that up. Yeah, I think it's great. Okay, let's get back to the English-speaking world for a minute because I barely do English right, so let's just stick to that for right now. I tell people all the time I'm bilingual. I speak some English, and I'm fluent in Appalachian. Um, here's the thing. We've talked to you the last couple times because we had you on during the COVID times. We're starting to get data now. We're start The kids that went through it are getting a little bit older. We just had uh, one of the rising college kids on last week. We're learning more and more about what actually happened mental health wise during COVID, during the lockdowns, during the school shutdowns. 
I know there's a lot of stuff there, but just give me two or three of the top line items of the research we're seeing, both practically what you're seeing in practice. And more importantly, there's a lot of peer review going on right now about what we did right, what we did wrong, what we're learning. Just give us a couple of the headlines that we should be taking away right now. Well, the big, I, I think loneliness was an enormous public health crisis before the pandemic, and it's worsened for a lot of people during the pandemic. And what I'm seeing in therapy practice is people saying that at least at first when everyone was kind of following the same measures, they could still connect with people. But now that people have different levels of risk tolerance in terms of masks, meeting outside, going inside, that it becomes an issue sometimes of conflict in between family members and friends in terms of what kind of social connections they're going to have. So that continues to be an issue along with kids who were out of school and returned to school in person and have anxiety, have maybe struggled with some depression, especially if their family has undergone economic hardships during this time. It's just a lot, so many stressors. And I think at the beginning of the pandemic, we'd like to think that it wasn't gonna last as long as it has as well. So I think that the length of time that this extra stressors have been there have just led to a lot of mental health issues. Let's let's go through a buzzword here real quick because this is something people talk about on their social media and I'm sure they talk about it in person. And I think it's something we need to define real, real clearly here, even though it's not really definable, if that's a great sentence for a clinician, <laughs> if they can figure okay. that one out. But this is just the fact of the matter is, when does something go from just being, all right, I'm having a bad day, I'm having a bad mood, I'm struggling today, this isn't going my way to, this is a mental health problem, I need help here. That's really the core debate to almost everything when dealing with mental health is when does it go from just, this is a day-to-day -day thing I can handle to, I need some help here. And people don't know how to talk about that line. It's a fuzzy gray line. It's a moving line. It's a moving goalpost. But that's really the core of the issue here, isn't it? I, yes, I think that's really tough because as mental health problems, at times when they're more prevalent and times when people are more openly talking about them, I think overall that's really important. That's good to reduce stigma and negative ideas about that people should feel shame for struggling with mental health. On the other hand, I think that it can make it a little harder to say, okay, I need to get help because I think then people say, but what I'm going through is so many other people are going through it too. And that's just how it is under these conditions. So one way that in psychology that we've looked at this traditionally is to look at, is a person impaired in some way? So are they having trouble working, trouble connecting with their family, trouble connecting with their partner, trouble with friends? Is there something that is their distress so bad that their functioning is impaired and that they're not able to have this quality of life where they're present in their relationships, where they're able to do things that are important to them. And so that's a big function. Or if the distress is so bad that the person just wants to feel better. And so I think that now what I've seen is this movement towards everyone should just go to therapy. And there's debate around that issue too. But I think that leaning on that side allows you to kind of go in talk to someone and see if there are some goals and things you can set to benefit from therapy, regardless of where you are on that kind of spectrum of, of mental health. 
Yeah. See, mental health is such a big thing. We could sit here and talk about it all day, and there's a lot of words, a lot of big buzzwords. Let, let's do something practical, though, with you. We're going to run through a couple of the headlines and narratives. These are big publications. This isn't fringe stuff. And just get your reaction to it, because that's what folks see every day. So maybe you can just react to it. So when they see it, because this stuff seems to be recurring, right? We see the same things over and over again. Here's a good one. This one's from NPR. Mental health in the back to school season. Now, I'm a parent. Uh, I just did registration with one of my children today. I was a little stressed doing it because I went in and they're like, oh, you got to do this all online. You didn't need to come in. Just little stuff like that. It's a good thing, though. Back to school, falls changing, routines changing, kids changing. This seems like a very valid headline to me. I agree. I think that it kind of normalizes uh, a buzzword that we like to use the common experience of the disruption that happens when you're going from summertime to school and all the things that go along with that that affect everybody in the family's routine. And so I like that because it kind of says, okay, let's talk about that. And this is a typical thing that most kids are going through. It's a positive thing in a lot of cases to go back to school, but it's stressful. And so here are some ways that you can talk about it with your family. So that I have a, an overall positive reaction to that headline. Yeah, I like that one. Okay, here's a little tougher one, but we're seeing this one a lot uh, from the New York Times. This one's about red flags for shooting, life crisis, not mental illness, experts say. We've seen this over and over again with mass shootings, but we see it with other criminality too. We're going to, you know, every time when we have police brutality videos, like, okay, you got you're doing violence to somebody that's violence, these sorts of things. Where does the line between mental illness and criminality collide? Because there's another one that's really hard to define. But we've got to have some kind of a working definition to deal with these sorts of things of like, OK, when is somebody responsible or not responsible for their behavior? This is a really hard, complicated question. And I'm not just saying that to avoid answering it. I think that it's controversial with good reason, because I think there are there are also I should say there are differences clinically and legally. Right. So legally, often when you're looking is is someone culpable of a crime, you're looking to see are they aware of being able to tell the difference between what's right and wrong? Are they competent to stand trial? In other words, can they participate in their own defense? Do they understand the proceedings that are going on? And forensic psychologists really specialize in those types of issues. Whereas from most therapists who are working with people who are struggling with mental health problems, fortunately don't have to get into these tricky areas. So I think that it's important to keep the mental health kind of lens along with seeing how that might interact with violence. I think the big concern that a lot of therapists raise and which I agree with is the over excessive link that can sometimes happen between mental health problems and violence. Whereas most people who struggle with mental health problems are not violent. They're much more likely to be victims of violence and perpetrators. And so I think that that sometimes is lost when it's really focusing on what's the mental health history of this particular violent person and in those stories. Yeah, we're going to keep seeing that one over and over again. All right. Uh, this one's a little bit more nuanced and big picture, but I kind of like how they phrase this here. This is from Forbes. Uh, headline, all mental health roads lead to a common destination. Be your authentic self. Uh, your career field makes a lot of money trying to help people find their authentic self. But 
I can see where that's kind of a core thing to what we're trying to do with mental health. Everybody's just trying to be the best them. And when you get away from whatever you're supposed to be, that's when you start having mental health problems. Right. I mean, that's really, really basic, but there's truth there. Absolutely. It doesn't feel good to have to get away from the things that we value. And so a lot of times therapy is focusing back on what we value, how we can be real. I think this comes up in therapy a lot with social media. If people feel like they're performing a particular identity or trying to get a particular effect on social media, that can feel inauthentic. And so sometimes people are trying to figure out how, how do I feel most grounded in myself? And I think therapy can be helpful for that because life has so many constraints. Most of us have to um, earn some money. We, we have, we can't be completely say whatever we want unfiltered at work to maintain a job. And so there are, you know, as parents, you know, it's requires effort of being a particular way. And so it's finding that authentic self within those roles that can be helpful to have someone in my profession help you to navigate, I think. Yeah. Talking to Dr. Katie Gordy. Okay. One more of these. And then we're going to move on. But uh, this is from WREL. That's Raleigh's TV station. Uh, new mental health data shows, quote, unsustainable burden on NC hospitals. And what this is driving at is rising mental health care, emergency room visits, involuntary commitments, and longer wait times for psychiatric beds. This is a wider problem in the medical field where, you know, emergency room care is really jacking up the rest of the system. This is really becoming an acute issue when it comes to mental health, isn't it? Absolutely. This is part of the problem of helping people once they've already developed severe, significant mental health problems, rather than going back to trying to prevent them in the first place by making people have access to their basic needs, that they have access to health care, to shelter, to food, to all of those things would prevent downstream, not all mental health problems, but it would reduce them significantly by reducing those stressors. And, and that those types of interventions are likely to help rather than waiting until the end when people are at the point where they're in the emergency room. Yeah, Dr. Catherine Gordon, we're going to take a quick break. We come back on her tell. We're going to get into one of her specialties, uh, pop culture references and how mental health is portrayed in commercials, even comic books, movies, TV shows, one of her favorite subjects. More with Dr. Catherine Gordon on her tell right after this. Uh, welcome back to Herd Tell. We're talking to our good friend, Dr. Catherine Gordon, talking a little mental health. We're going to talk about pop culture with you because this is how you you've addressed this so brilliantly in a lot of different mediums, from podcasting to your writing to other things. But before we do that, um, I saw a lot of headlines when I was doing prep for talking to you. It does seem like entertainers, actors, stars, we're seeing more and more sports stars. We're seeing more and more... Um, stars in the social media and influencer realm, even executives and companies, there really does seem to be a positive movement moving towards people being open about, hey, I'm taking a mental health break. I'm saying no to this. I'm open about my mental health care. At least that aspect of this seems to be getting better. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think that's still really meaningful to people when they hear 
whether it's a sports figure, actor, whoever it is, musician that they look up to saying that they're trying to find ways to prioritize their mental health. I think that can mean a lot to people. It, it kind of, I think that especially if you're feeling isolated or struggling with mental health problems and feeling a lot of shame about it, when you see someone you look up to express those things, it can, it can help a lot. All right. So one of my favorite things to always talk about with you, pop culture, what have you been seeing and watching lately that has either a positive or negative effect on mental health that you really hit and go, Oh, I've got to talk about that because that brought up, we've talked about it before. You did a wonderful piece in ordinary times about Bojack Horseman. We'll link to that. And the other things you wrote, you know, stuff people just don't think about and go, Oh, that's a really positive thing. What's a couple of the things that have gotten your attention lately? Well, thank you. And I don't know if you noticed, but I have a Bojack poster right behind me. See, we call that a segue in the biz. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I'm just a professional like that. Exactly. Well, I, I was happy I watched this last night because I knew I was talking to you today. I watched the first episode of She-Hulk on Disney+, Plus, and it was a big deal in the psychology community because and the therapy community because the Hulk named a specific type of therapy, dialectical behavior therapy, that he uses to manage his anger and his distress. And so he's talking to She-Hulk about some of the principles in this therapy so that she can manage her emotions as to prevent turning into the Hulk. And um, it was a, it's a big deal because a lot of the time there it's non-specific, it's generic stuff. But here he named the therapy. He actually said that it was evidence-based and he talked about some of the components of the therapy to her. So it was it was kind of cool to see that in such a big show. Um, another big show that just came back, Game of Thrones is back with the House of the Dragon. It brought up a whole lot of the old, now art is subjective and what is and isn't gratuitous is really subjective, but I've got to ask because these are triggering things, gratuitous violence, um, depictions of sexual assault, things like this that are in art pieces like this. This debate will always come up of, is this bringing light to it or is this glorifying it? I know there's not a hard and fast answer for that, but is there some guardrails that people should go into something like a Game of Thrones or uh, movies with violence or movies with depictions of assault? Things that are triggering the folks that we know are triggering. Is there some guardrails they can maybe know, even though it's subjective of just like, okay, here's what I need to do mindset wise going into something like this. I think that broadly speaking, the question about how it's impacting our culture at large is is an important question. I think that's harder to answer than how it's impacting individuals. I really encourage people to recognize how their own moods are affected by what they're watching, what they're reading, what they're doing, and explore that because it's hard to miss out on big pop culture events like very popular TV shows and all of those types of things And yet it's also important to feel like it's okay to draw limits on what you want to watch and what you want to do. Because if you notice that you're having nightmares or more flashbacks when you're watching those shows, which won't happen for a lot of people, but if it does happen for you, then I think it's good to really pay attention to that and modify your, what you're viewing uh, accordingly to protect your mental health. Another big time show that, 
pretty blatantly delved into mental health now. Uh, Stranger Things Season 4 came out. Uh, we won't do spoilers in case people haven't watched it, but there is a character on this season who is, that's exactly what he's there for, basically talk about this stuff. Obviously, there's trauma involved because of the really weird stuff that happens in the show. And again, I don't want to do spoilers here, but it, it's weird stuff. It's kind of a play off the, you know, the satanic panic and stuff like that from the 80s, which I'm old enough to actually remember the first time. We didn't get mental health treatment for that stuff, but that's another story for another day. What about something like Stranger Things 4? Because it gets a little trickier when you have, and I know they're they're almost adults now still playing younger children, but when you have children as the main leads and you start dealing with things like that, does that change that equation or is that something that really needs to be presented on screen? Again, it's a touchy subject, but is that something because the stars of the show came out and said, no, we think it's good that they're showing kids in this light. What's your opinion on it, though? I think that it can be done poorly and be done well. And so if they have people involved in creating those scenes that are sensitive and making sure that appropriate developmental boundaries are drawn in terms of what they're doing, what they're depicting and what they're exposed to, then there can be some benefits because even though kids are not facing demogorgons, they do face other things. And so I think there could be something that's relatable, but, I, I would take some caution in terms of not wanting to exploit the shock value of what happens to kids or even the kids themselves. Again, I know they're not really kids anymore, but developmentally, I, I would want to think about what's best for them and their well-being. So while that is taking place and that being a priority over entertainment. Something I wanted to ask you, because you've done different media, you've done podcasting, you've done writing, you do interviews like this, you've done radio with me. When people are talking about mental health, because you've done all these different platforms now, so you've done a little bit of all of it. You're actually tweeting about this, kind of like where you're at in your journey yourself. What's one or two things you could give to just the normal person? They may not know, like you were talking about She-Hulk, and it's like, oh, it's a big deal they use the right nomenclature. Well, people don't know the right nomenclature. People don't know stuff like that. They just want to help people. What's a couple of just real simple ways that they could change maybe how they do their social media or their interpersonal relationships when they're talking about this stuff that you would say tweak? Is it, you know, just the the overall viewpoint on it? Is it the sensitivity on it? Is it learning a few of the few of the terminologies just so you know what you're actually talking about instead of just following a buzzword? Give folks a couple practical things they can do to to lift up this discourse a little bit. Sure. I, I think one of the the big deal things about them using the dialectical behavior therapy term is because it shows that not all therapy is created equal. And I think that's important for people to know. There are a lot of influencers, for example, who kind of can get a lot of attention and following by talking about self-help and quick fixes. And that should send off alarm bells to use some critical thinking because change as, as, most of us know have tried to make change in their life is hard. It does take particular skills and tools. So anything that seems too good to be true or a quick fix and things like that, I think that it's important to look at that critically and also not, you know, have some compassion for others who are struggling with mental health problems and understand that there aren't quick fixes in most cases. And so even understanding and having some compassion for the idea that it's a lot of work for people to work through mental health problems, that can be a way to get to a more authentic understanding of each other, a more compassionate place. 
Yeah, Dr. Katie Gordon. All right. We mentioned it earlier. I want you to tell people about it. I've actually read this when it first came out because you were nice enough to send me an advanced copy of it. I've actually recommended this to people. It's the suicide prevention, uh, suicide thought workbook. Tell people what this is, what it was designed to do. We're going to link to it so people can get it. They can share it. This is one of those things where you probably wouldn't mind if they actually bought it and left it laying around somewhere for someone to find because that's kind of what it's designed to be. Just tell people about the book real quick. Sure. The basic idea of the book is that suicidal thoughts are really common and that through therapy and science, there are tools that can help to deal with soothing pain, soothing loneliness, and keeping yourself safe. And I have tried to summarize those in really accessible worksheets and exercises, hopefully, in, in this workbook. And, and that's what the workbook is all about. All right, Dr. Katie Gordon, one last one before we let you go. This was an internet meme that went around, but I think it's actually pretty cool because I'm actually a transportation guy by trade. So when they go transportation and mental health together, I'm like, oh, I'm there. Uh, this was a sandwich board sign. I'm going to read it to you. We'll put it up on the show as well for the YouTube viewers. Quote, tweet, treat, <laughs> tweet, <laughs> Freudian slip. <laughs> uh, treat yourself like I-95 and never stop working on yourself, no matter how inconvenient it is for everybody else. What do you think? <laughs> I, I think that's true. That's just, you know, I I also want to recognize that some people um, are too critical of themselves. And so it's definitely a balance that actually came up in She-Hulk. Assume people are doing their best and that they can do better. I think that's a good kind of way to look at things, to acknowledge where you've made those positive changes, but also acknowledge where you can improve. Yeah, Dr. Katie Gordon, we love having you on. Uh, we went a little lighter on topic today, but that's good because you need to be able to talk about this in a light way and then let people go as deep as they need to. And let folks know, like we mentioned, you've got some life changes going on. Let folks know what you got going on and where they can follow you until we get you back again on Hertel. And it's not going to be so long this time because that was crazy and you were busy moving and so forth. So let folks know what you got going on. Absolutely. Well, you're the first to really hear this announcement, but I've decided to start a new newsletter. I'm, I'm joining Substack um, as a, as a writer, not just a reader. And it's, it's going to be mental health minute. I'm going to launch that in September 1st because September is suicide prevention month. And the idea is to take therapeutic tools and summarize them briefly for busy people so that you can weekly in your email inbox, get something useful, hopefully that you can use that week. Fantastic. And uh, when you get that up and running in September, let us know. We'll have you on and we'll definitely talk about it. Dr. Catherine Gordon, you're one of the best. We love discussing things with you. You keep watching that pop culture stuff so I don't have to. And we'll talk <laughs> again real soon, my friend. Okay, thank you. Thank you, ma'am. Welcome back to Herd Tell. Over on the Herd Tell podcast from over the weekend, we did a deep dive with our friend Amanda Griffiths on Machiavelli. It's getting all kinds of response. Lots of you are finding it. We hope you go find it. However you're listening to the program right now, just look for Herd Tell podcast Machiavelli and you can pull it right up. We're going to play another clip from that discussion more about how the founding fathers of America 
and the philosophy, both political and otherwise, came from Machiavelli. Stuff you may not have known. Great stuff. Amanda Griffiths from the Hertel Podcast right now. But it was John Adams is the one that's really got into Machiavelli. He wrote extensively about Machiavelli, and he he wrote so much about it, he actually wrote about what other people wrote about it. So he wrote about what Sidney and Montesquieu and these other guys were writing about Machiavelli. So he was really getting into it. And that's where you start really seeing um, not so much the political philosophy, but the core philosophy of Machiavelli, which is what the Catholic Church probably objected to, because the Catholic Church, I don't want to get too theological here, but you've got to, you got to deal with this because it's important. The Catholic Church was, we are what redeems men. And Machiavelli's core principle and what John Adams latched on was, no, human nature is undefeated and driven by passion, and it's always going to be bad unless you put guardrails on it. And when you get through all the myth and all that, that's kind of the question that they're dealing with, isn't it? Well, that's certainly Adams, yeah. And I think Machiavelli doesn't really, he certainly talks about men and, he, and, and, and what we today call human nature. Um, and I think what Machiavelli would say is that, you know, men re- that, and, and maybe here, here I'll go right back to Homer. <laughs> Salvation's light is in our We cannot hands. get away from the Greeks in this conversation. Right. No, we We're can't. trying to stay away from the Greeks. It's all Greek well, to me. I mean, yeah, no, Ajax is my Hellenic crush. So, I mean, I stand. But, uh, so, yeah, Salvation's light is in our, is in our hands work. And I think Machiavelli would, would agree with that as well. You know, Machiavelli is perhaps, yeah, he's got a cynical, he's absolutely got cynicism to him. But there's also, I think if you're going to write what Machiavelli writes, and if you're going to want to be involved in politics at all, you do have to have some degree of some weird kind of optimism within that cynicism, or that idealism, I should say, within that cynicism. And for Machiavelli, I don't think he sees men as inherently fallen, because I don't, he doesn't understand anything as inherently good or bad. So in order to see someone as fallen, you would have to understand someone as inherently bad or as there being some kind of inherent thing like evil. For Machiavelli, it's very much what we do with what is given to us. And Adams, I think you're absolutely correct, is is looking at this uh, for him through a more, you know, if, if you're if you're reading religion into it, Adams is looking at this through more of a, no, people, people need guardrails because people are wicked and fallen. Machiavelli does say that men are sadly wicked, but that is more of, of a commentary on the way that things are. It's not a commentary, I think, on, on essence so much. It's not a commentary on some fixed state. Machiavelli is all about how people are fluid and everything is always in flux. I think what Machiavelli wants to do is he wants to use that that fact of things always being in flux, of nothing being inherently good or evil, and say, let's work with what is, let's work with what's given to us, by contingency, by this, you know, by this basket of externalities that we see as being external to us and use it toward our purpose. And then that in and of itself is a kind of redemption. And you see that 
in the way that Machiavelli talks about the necessity of tumults and people fighting with one another and there being political strife and struggle. It's in that collision of multiple forces and multiple intentions and, and multiple desires that actually produces great, amazing things and keeps on creating and perpetuates the life of the Republic. It's, it's born and born again and renews itself through this collision and through this, you know, through, uh, through the, you know, the cacophony of all things. So again, that, that's a little bit more metaphysical, but I think you, that's, that plays into what we see today in our own systems and our own institutions of having parties duking it out, of having people with different political views, you know, of having discourse, of having, uh, you know, of having open speech and things like that. So we get some of these ideas, maybe not directly from Machiavelli, but you certainly find them supported in what Machiavelli says. Welcome back to Herd Tell. I'm not going to read from the piece, but we will link to it over at NewsExpressKentucky.com. Uh, talking about the flooding that happened in Kentucky and also, by the way, flooding in my native West Virginia down in the upper Canal Valley, that uh, there's a big issue with pets. They get abandoned. They get loose. People usually have to surrender them in order to go into things like FEMA housing or temporary housing or hotels. It's a problem. We'll link to this piece and you can read about the Kentucky Humane Society and what they're doing there. Uh, the Floyd County Animal Shelter, the Pike County Animal Shelter in Kentucky. Also send links if you want to help these folks out. I just remember this firsthand when I went to the church I grew up in that was doing flood relief in West Virginia in 2016. One of the things that really struck you and that they hadn't planned for was as people poured in, they had set up the gym at the church as an emergency shelter. Everybody's in the cots. They got an influx of a massive amount of pets. So out in the parking lot, they actually ended up setting up a temporary kennel and it turned into tons and tons of animals coming in. It turned into a massive operation where three or four people were just taking care of pets all the time. They set up tents. They had to walk the pets, of course. They had to have pen areas for them to be out and about. And of course, they had to have crates for them to be put up during the nights and other things. That also means they needed massive amounts of food and water to take care of the pets. So when you're doing these flood reliefs, think we always take care of people first. They're the most important. Don't be afraid to throw in some pet food once in a while and look at these shelters who are going to get overrun. That'll do it for Herd Tell today. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, if you missed any part of the show on the YouTube or any of the podcasting platforms, you can, of course, find it all there. It's always free. Make sure you're subscribed. Make sure you're followed. Please do give us a like leave a comment, leave a rating if it gives you that option on the platform you're on. Share us on your social media. Put us on your Facebook page. Put us on your Instagram. Put us on your Twitter. We sure appreciate it. Let folks know about our program. Word of mouth is how this program has grown. It's all because of you, and we appreciate you greatly. So till we see you again, wherever you and yours are, across the street or around the world, we hope you're well. We hope you're well-fed, and we'll talk to you again tomorrow for more Herd Tell. All the music on her tell is provided under a creative content license from monstercat.com.
For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. Folks, if you've listened to the Herd Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from D.C. and beyond. From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to the District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played.